All right, good morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8, and we're also going to take a look at chapter 1 and verse 3. So it's Revelation 21, 1 to 8, and Revelation 1, verse 3. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find this on page 1041, and then verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 is on page 1028. So let's start with Revelation 21, 1 to 8. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 21, this is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then flip to chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Thank you. You may have a seat. All right. Well, if you were with us last Sunday you'll know that Pastor Chris preached the last sermon in a series on the book of Isaiah. That's a series that we have been in with a few breaks here and there for a little over two years. And this morning, we're moving on from Isaiah, and we're jumping right to the end of the Bible and focusing on Revelation 21, 1 to 8. And that may seem odd to you at first. It might be kind of like reading the last few pages of a book before the beginning. Like, we don't need a show of hands this morning, but do you know anyone who does that, who reads the last chapter of a book before they start the, at the beginning? Now, uh, and I say this in love, but if you're one of those people, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. My, my wife, Whitney, she is actually one of these people. She, she reads the end of a book before she starts it. And we've had a lot of conversations about that. (laughs) Um, um, But Whitney's reasoning, I think, is sound. It makes sense. So she says that 
Um, a book is more in, enjoyable to her when she knows how it's going to wrap up, how it's going to end. So from her viewpoint, when she knows the ending uh, before she starts, she can put the kids down at night, she can sit down before bed and read through a couple of chapters, and then she can go to bed in peace. While I, on the other hand, have to stay up till like three in the morning to see what's going to happen and if everything's going to work out. Now, I still don't agree with Whitney's approach when it comes to books, especially fiction, but as far as scripture is concerned, I think she's on to something. Throughout the Bible, especially in the prophetic books and the New Testament, God doesn't shy away from telling his people about what's to come, about what's going to happen in the end. Now, while that might ruin a mystery novel, it's one of the glorious things about the Word of God. Just consider Revelation for a moment. The book is written by John, most likely the apostle who wrote the fourth gospel in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But while John is the author of the book, he's crystal clear right from the start that what he's writing didn't originate with him. He says in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So in this book, John's writing down what he's being told to write down. John's writing down what he's being shown. And the purpose of all of this is to show the servants of the Lord the things that must soon take place. So the question is, why does God want his servants to have this information? What's the purpose in that? Well, at the time of John's writing, it's probably around AD 90, and John's in exile on the island of Patmos, uh, and he's in exile on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And he's writing to seven churches in Asia uh, that are likely representative of all the churches. Um, but these seven churches are suffering too. And based on the context, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, these saints faced a variety of hardships as well as temptations to sin. And so it included things like false teaching, uh, idolatry, sexual immorality, complacency, complacency due to wealth, uh, poverty, the slander of those who say they are Jews but are really a synagogue of Satan, prison, and even death. And Jesus issues a charge to these churches and to all of the saints. And his charge is this, to repent of their sin, to walk in faithfulness, even if that means death, because judgment is coming for the disobedient. But great reward is in store for those who conquer, for those who endure and remain faithful. And that's exactly what's laid out in chapters 4 to 22. There's, there's a lot in those chapters that is difficult to understand, but what's clear is that John receives this grand vision of the future in which God is reigning in majesty on his throne. Jesus the Lion of Judah and the victorious Lamb who was slain returns and he vanquishes all his enemies. God judges and casts into the lake of fire everyone who rejects Christ and persists in sin. And those who conquer, those who persevere through trial and temptation, inherit a new heaven 
and a new earth where they dwell with God forever as his holy, perfected, pure bride. So can you see why God would want his servants and us to know that? He wants us to stay faithful. He wants us to endure through trial and tribulation. And so he shows us an encouraging, motivating, sobering picture of the future in which he's in control, the disobedient are judged, and the faithful are rewarded. And so this morning, we're going to work our way through Revelation 21, 1 to 8, and we'll get a glimpse of this very good ending that awaits all of God's people, everyone who's turned from their sins and trusted in Jesus for salvation. And as we read about what's to come, we should respond today, I think, in at least three ways. One, we should take comfort. Two, we should rest assured. And three, we should thirst for God and conquer. So first, point one, take comfort. Look with me at the first four verses here again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. <sighs> wow. I mean, don't those verses just make you want to like, fist pump? Like throw your arms in the air and say, yes, do it. Like, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Notice in these verses Amen. how they're bracketed off in verses 1 to 4. So in verse 1, you get the phrase, the first earth had passed away. And then in verse 4, a similar phrase appears, for the former things have passed away. And this new heaven and this new earth, the former things, sin and all its consequences are gone. And God dwells with his people. So without doubt, that provides comfort to the sufferer, balm for the saints on this side of heaven who are waiting for redemption and longing to be home. But before we get ahead of ourselves here, let's further unpack what's happening. So in Revelation 20, the chapter right before this in verse 11, the Lord is seated on a great white throne, getting ready to judge all the dead. And from his presence in verse 11, earth and sky flee, and they're never coming back. And as 21.1 here says, they had passed away, and the sea which likely here symbolizes evil, especially given that the beast in Revelation 13.1 rises out of the sea. The sea was no more. Now, it's not clear here whether this is referring to a renewal of heaven and earth or a complete replacement. But what is plain is the meaning. Our broken world, along with all the things that plague it, evil, sin, and sin's consequences are forever cast away, never to return. And a new heaven and new earth are ushered in, fulfilling what Isaiah prophesied somewhat 800 years prior to the writing of Revelation 
in Isaiah 65, 17, and 66, 2. And in this new heaven and new earth, as verse 2 says, the holy city, new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, it can be difficult to determine whether this city refers to a place or a people. But the best answer, I think, is that it's both. And here in verse 2, though, we shouldn't miss what's said about the city. So this is the holy city. The people of God have been perfected. They've put on the imperishable. They are now absolutely, completely free of sin. We're conformed to the image of Christ and what John wrote in 1 John 3, 2 comes to full fruition. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's good news. This is the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the site of the temple. It's where the Lord dwelled with his people. But now the city is the place of God's dwelling. And this holy city, this new Jerusalem, has been prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Isaiah 52.1 is finally fulfilled. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. What's said in Ephesians 5, 25 to 27 has come to pass. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's here in these verses. That has happened. And the saints... In the words of Revelation 7, 14, they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. By grace through faith in Christ, who died for them and was raised, their sins have been forgiven. Their sins have been atoned for, and now they enter into the presence of their God and Savior. And the word that comes from the throne in verse 3 is a good one. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the greatest blessing of the new heaven and the new earth. We get to dwell with God. And we get to dwell with him in eternal covenant relationship. Two things are uh, worth noting here. One, the language in this verse reflects the covenant language between God and his people. You can see this in Leviticus 26, 11 to 12, where God says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Here, in Revelation 21, this relationship finally meets its full fulfillment as God dwells with his holy people, his pure bride. And noteworthy is the fact that the Greek word for people in Revelation 21.3, it's plural. That doesn't happen elsewhere where this language is used in the Bible. And what this is pointing to is the fact that all peoples are going to be here. All peoples will be 
with God in this bright future that is to come. So what's written in Revelation 7, 9 to 10 is going to come to pass. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So for everyone who has trusted Christ, people from every tribe and tongue and people and language, we are all going to be gathered here, dwelling with our Savior and God. And what a glorious future that's going to be. Another thing that's noteworthy here is the Greek word that's translated dwelling. That word also means tabernacle. Now, that's significant, especially given the context. So, to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, after Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden and were sent away out from His presence, the Lord, nevertheless, made a way to dwell among His sinful people. And He did that by means of the tabernacle, a portable tent where Israelites made sacrifices for their sin. And among other things, in this tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, a square-shaped room guarded by a veil that contained the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat where God met with His people. Later in Israel's history, the tabernacle became a permanent structure in the temple, But the limitations of this system were clear. While it made a way for God to dwell among his people, there was nevertheless a barrier between them because of the people's sin. And despite their sacrifices, the people's sins were never finally atoned for. So they had to keep coming back regularly, time after time, again and again. Well, all that changed with Jesus. John 1.14 says that he took on flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. God came to us. And through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for sinners, the barrier between God and his people was removed. The veil that separated them was torn in two. And now everyone who turns from their sins and trusts in Jesus for salvation has access to God and has the Holy Spirit in them. This is the good news. And here in Revelation 21.3, all of this is coming to fulfillment as God dwells among his people, his bride, an intimate covenant relationship. And in fact, we don't have time for this this morning, but if you were to look ahead in Revelation 21.15 and 16, you'll see that the city, like the Holy of Holies, is square-shaped. looks the exact same way. That means that we get to permanently dwell in the presence of God. There's no need for a temple here. As verse 22 of chapter 21 says, its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So all of this has come to fulfillment, and the people of God dwell with Him forever in perfect unity and covenant relationship. Jim Hamilton puts it this way in his commentary on Revelation. This means that in the new creation, in the holy city, when God enters into the new marriage covenant with his bride, what was aimed at in Eden, in the tabernacle, in the temple, and in the church will finally be realized. God will dwell with his people. 
in a new cosmos and a holy city with no sea from which an evil snake might arise. God will dwell with his people in intimate covenant relationship. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Christian, because of what Jesus did for you on the cross, this is your future. You get to dwell with God. And look in verse 4 at what God's going to do for you. God's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Doesn't that sound like good news today? Like, are you ready to be rid of injustices, sin, and the evil that characterizes this world? Things like bullying, lying, gossip, slander, poverty, starvation, racism, war, divorce, pornography, prostitution, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, murder, abortion, orphaned children, persecution, genocide, suicide, disability, cancer, and death, gone. Every bit of it, gone. That day's coming. And are you ready to be rid Christian, of your daily battle with sin and be perfected? That day's coming too. Listen to Sally Lloyd-Jones describe these events in the Jesus Storybook Bible. One day, John knew heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true, perfect home once again. And he knew in some mysterious way that would be hard to explain that everything was going to be more wonderful for once having been so sad. And he knew then that the ending of the story was going to be so great, it would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem like just a shadow that is chased away by the morning sun. I'm on my way, said Jesus. I'll be there soon. Come, Lord Jesus. We are waiting for it. Creation itself is waiting for it, Paul says in Romans 8. And here, in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4, this very good ending comes. Sin, evil, and sin's consequences, death, mourning, crying, pain, they all pass away. And we are made holy, pure, beautiful, and we get to dwell with our God. And that's the reason to take comfort this morning. Do you ever struggle to believe that? Do you struggle to really grasp in the day-to-day -day that this is your future as a Christian? You may intellectually believe it, but when life gets hard, when trial comes, when you are face-to-face -face with the ugliness of your sin, do you ever forget that this good day is coming? Well, when you struggle to believe God's promises, call to mind John 14, 2 to 3. Those are the fighter verses this past week. So we're going to add in verse 1 this time. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So, memorize those verses. Call those to mind when you lose sight of what's in store for you 
as a Christian. And further, and this is point two, rest assured that God is going to fulfill every one of these sweet promises he's made to his people. So look with me at verse 5 through the beginning of verse 6. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. These verses begin with the powerful statement, He who was seated on the throne said. Earlier in chapter 4 of Revelation, John sees a wonderful picture of God seated on his throne. It's a majestic, it's an awesome scene. Around the throne are four living creatures who day and night cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And there are also 24 elders there who fall down before the throne, cast down their crowns and say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the God, this is the one seated on the throne who's speaking here in chapter 21. And he says, Behold, I'm making all things new. There's a lot that's encouraging about that, but you know what's really striking? This process has actually already started. It began with the ministry and resurrection of Jesus. While Jesus was on earth, he ushered in, in part, the kingdom of God. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He told the wind and the waves to cease, and they actually did. He even raised the dead. And most importantly, after his own sacrificial death on the cross for sinners, He was raised three days later in victory. All these were signs that a great reversal was happening. God was acting to conquer Satan, sin, and death and redeem his people. And this wonderful work of renewal has been happening ever since. If you are a Christian here this morning, you are evidence of it. Remember verse 4 of this passage. That phrase, the former things have passed away. Now recall this declaration in verse 5. I am making all things new. The former things have passed. I am making all things new. Does that remind you of another verse in the Bible? If not, that's okay. But I think it should remind us of 2 Corinthians 5.17. There Paul says, Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When God saves you, when he opens your eyes to repent of your sin and believe the gospel, something miraculous happens. You move from spiritual death to spiritual life. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, 4-7. But God 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So yes, even now God is making all things new and we, brothers and sisters, are evidence of it. And so if you find yourself doubting the Lord's promises, if you find yourself wondering if he has forgotten you, if he's really going to do everything that he said he'll do, on Sundays like this, all you have to do is look another believer in the eye. They're evidence that God comes through on every one of his promises. They are a new creation in Christ. We are a new creation in Christ, a foreshadowing, a foretaste of what's to come. But God doesn't end there. He continues on in verse 5, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord's word is so certain, it's so sure, that he can confidently tell John to put ink to paper regarding future promises. And what's more, he can even, verse 6, shout, It is done! before the events unfold in real time. He's the only one in the universe able to do that, able to make a claim like that and actually follow through. And do you know why? We need to keep reading. It's because he's the Alpha and Omega, which are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He is the beginning and the end. Remember the verses we read a minute ago from Revelation 4, 11? God created all things, and by his will they existed and were created. Nothing came before God, and nothing is going to come after him. He's the Alpha and Omega. He is the A to Z. He is the beginning and the end. He's the only one able to accomplish all his promises. He's the only one who always finishes his to-do list at the end of the day. He's the one who never disappoints. As Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Everything he pleases, he does. Can't be stopped. Christian, isn't that encouraging? That should be so encouraging to us. So if you are here and uh, you aren't a Christian, I hope that this is an appealing picture to you. God's going to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. He's going to adorn his holy people like a bride. He's going to dwell with them in eternal covenant relationship, and he's going to send death to hell and wipe away our tears. Do you want that? Do you want to dwell with God for eternity where all the former things like death and suffering are no more? Is there something inside of you, if you're here today and aren't a Christian, that longs for it? The good news is that God offers it to you for free. And that brings us to our third and final point. Thirst for God and conquer. Look with me at the end of verse 6 through verse 8, the end of our passage. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, 
As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Verse 6 here is both a promise and an invitation, I think. The thirst being referenced is thirst for God. And the promise is that God will give the thirsty from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the invitation is to come to the waters and drink for free. This calls to mind what was prophesied earlier in Isaiah 55, 1-3. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Come, drink and eat for free. Jesus may, be, may have been alluding to this passage in John 4, 13 to 14, when he tells the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water, that is, the water at the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So again, if you are here this morning and you aren't a Christian, are you thirsty? Have you sought satisfaction in what the world offers and come up empty? Respond to this invitation today. Nothing in the world can satisfy you when we go anywhere other than the fountain that the Lord supplies We're like what's prophesied in Isaiah 55. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? The Lord, he is the only thing that can satisfy you. As Augustine once said, our hearts were made for you. and We're restless until we find our rest in you. God is the only one who can satisfy you who can fulfill your desire and he offers this gift to you this morning for free he doesn't want your good works he doesn't want your best effort he doesn't want your pull yourself up by your bootstraps religion the only requirement for this gift is to be thirsty so this morning turn away from your sin Turn away from all your vain efforts to satisfy your thirst and things that are not God and trust in Jesus to save you. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death on the cross and he rose from the dead three days later. And because of what he has done, the promise for everyone who trusts in him, if we turn to him and accept the water, the free gift he offers is that we will be saved. We will have eternal life. 
We will be made right with God and all of these wonderful, sweet, precious promises that we read about in verses 1 to 4 will be yours. You can have that assurance this morning. And if you're here and you are a Christian, stay thirsty, long for God, and run to Him to satisfy your every longing, your every need. This is something that all of us as Christians need. It's something that we all must do until the events of Revelation 21 and 22 come to pass. And that brings us to the final two verses of our passage, verses 7 and 8. Here the Lord presents two options, two paths. On the one hand, there is the one who conquers. And on the other, there is the sinful and disobedient. The one who conquers will have this heritage, namely the blessings and benefits of the new heavens and new earth. And as the Lord says in verse 7, I will be his God and he will be my son. We will be heirs of Christ, heirs to the kingdom. This is a promise which recalls the covenants the Lord made with Abraham and Genesis 17 and David and 2 Samuel 7 coming to fruition, promises for us who trust in the Lord and who continue to run to him to quench our thirst. But... As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. In other words, for everyone who rejects Christ and persists in sin, a certain future is an eternity apart from God in hell. Jim Hamilton summarizes these verses in this way. He says, If you trust in Christ and thirst for God, He will be your God, your provider, protector, savior, and defender, and you will be His son and heir of all that is His. But if God is not what you worship, if you thirst for things other than Him, your life will show it. If you do not trust Christ and thirst for God, 21.8 is talking about you. That's sobering, isn't it? Verse 8 is a warning. To anyone not in Christ, this is a warning to forsake your sin and run to Jesus for salvation. He is ready and willing to save you and give you new eternal life. And this is a warning too for those of us who are Christians. That doesn't mean that we can lose our salvation It's not as if you can trust Christ, be remade, a la 2 Corinthians 5.17, and then be unmade. That can't happen. Rather, this is a gracious warning for us to stay thirsty for God and conquer, to endure to the end and remain faithful. Because those who don't, those who professed Christ and failed to endure to the end have not lost their salvation, rather they've proved that they never had it in the first place. That's the reason for this warning, and it's a gracious one for us. It's a call for obedience, endurance, faithfulness. You know, one of my favorite uh, illustrations on this subject 
and I've mentioned this here before, is from The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. So I'm not going to recap that whole book for you and bore you to death, but just a really quick recap so you can understand the illustration. So in The Hobbit, if you've never read it, a group of dwarves set out on a journey to reclaim their home and treasure from a fierce, fire-breathing dragon. With them are also a wizard named Gandalf and a hobbit named Bilbo. And on the way to the dwarves' home, which is called the Lonely Mountain, the group has to overcome many obstacles, including an encounter with trolls and goblins. Uh, one, such, one such obstacle is not a person or an animal, but it's a place. It's a dark woodland called the Mirkwood Forest. And before entering the forest, Gandalf the wizard warns the dwarves and Bilbo a couple of times to stay on the path, to stay on the path that's provided through the wood. And he tells them that if they get off track, they might not, they probably won't make it out of Mirkwood alive. So the group enters this terrifying forest and they stay on the path for a while, but eventually they become hungry, they lose their faith and hope, and they leave the trail when they think they're near food. In other words, they fail to remember Gandalf's words and to heed his warning. And as a result, they quickly come face to face with menacing spiders and dangerous elves, and it looks like all hope of finding the mountain and the treasure are lost. And it's in this context that you get this quote in the book. They had crossed the enchanted stream, but beyond it, the path seemed to straggle on just as before, and in the forest, they could see no change. Yet if they had known more about it, they would have known that they were at last drawing towards the eastern edge and would soon have come if they could have kept up their courage and their hope to thinner trees and places where the sunlight came again. Man, that is a really good picture of what's happening here. Christians, we are in between the already and the not yet. Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God in part. And a day is coming in the future when he will bring it in in full. And in the meantime, for those of us who are trusting Christ, the call is to endure. The call is to remain faithful. The call is to look and see what's coming it's like we're in Mirkwood. It's like we're near the end. And what we need to realize is we are near the eastern edge. And if we would keep up our courage and hope, we would see that thinner trees are coming, that the sunlight's going to break through. Christian, this very good ending is coming. You can take it to the bank. And in Revelation 21, 1 to 8, We've got reason, plenty of it, to take comfort, to rest assured, and to thirst for God and conquer. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for this gift that you have given us, this gift of seeing the very bright future that awaits your people where we will dwell with you. You will be our God. We will be your people. And sin, evil, and the consequences of sin, we will be no more. They will have passed away.
Lord, thank you for this picture. Thank you for this comforting word. Thank you for this assuring word. Thank you for this motivation that you've given us to press on. Most of all, Father, we are grateful for Christ. We are grateful that in him you have met our greatest need, our need to be reconciled to you. God, we are thankful that he came to earth and accomplished everything he set out to do. He came to win salvation for the people of God, and he did it. And Lord, because of that, we have this promise that if we trust him, that if we forsake our sin and turn in faith to Jesus, our Savior and King, we will be saved. We will have righteousness. We will be justified before you. And Lord, we cling to that this morning, and we are grateful for that this morning as your people. So please encourage us this week with these truths, and please spur us on to love and good deeds for your great name and for the good of all peoples. In Christ's name, amen.